This is episode 19 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. What are the rules of biographers? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, it's not like a guild that meets, um, you know, biannually to, uh, to, to, to examine the bylaws. Um, a lot of it is, you know, you learn to write by reading. You, you learn by instinct what's good writing and what's not, uh, what's fair and what's unfair, um, what's perceptive and what's not. I mean, you, you just, you learn to be your own editor. Uh, and again, that's not to say there aren't experts who can make what you do better. Um, but, you know, the mystery, I've never really thought about it this way, if there's a mystery, is I spent my life, professional life, studying people as an occupation, and more than an occupation. I mean, I take, I take my work more seriously, I think, than, 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 than it may appear. Um, it's uh, the justification for my existence. That's the New England Calvinist, uh, the Catherine Hepburn, if you will, the combination of Catherine Hepburn and John Winthrop. Um, but, the, but the paradox is, while I study people uh, intimately and from the inside out, um, I've never been particularly drawn to one person. Um, I'm uh, most people would uh, consider me something of a recluse. Um, I'm not particularly social. It isn't that I study people in the mass or you know in the raw, as it were. Um, but you know, if you ask, you know, what do you do for a living? You know, I would say I'm a biographer. How, how did you? decide about Tom Dewey and and by the someone way, I wanted to know where do, you, you've referenced a couple of times the little man on the wedding cake or whatever where did that come from well that's the one of the wonderful stories that you learn very early I mean one of the things you, you learn is to beware of these anecdotes and we've all seen them anyone who reads you don't have to be a professional anyone who reads history you become, particularly if you're particularly drawn to any one subject or personality, you, you read the same stories that get carried on from book to book to book, you know. And that's a sign of a lazy biographer in a lot of ways. In any event, um, Alice Roosevelt Longworth famously uh, is attributed as a source of this devastating bon mot because it was so was so true to life. I mean, Tom Dewey was was short, um, and um, how short he was? Well, he wasn't. I mean, he was about five eight. Um, as he, his his defenders pointed out, he was taller than Churchill and Stalin. Um, but anyway, uh, FDR was a, FDR in his wheelchair was a towering figure. Um, anyway. But one that Dewey had a little mustache, which reminded some people of Charlie Chaplin and others of Hitler. 
Uh, and today, of course, you know, the handlers would make sure that it was long gone. He had a gap, a very unpresidential gap between his two front teeth. And neither say that's the first thing that would have been fixed. No. They both, he kept the mustache and the gap because his wife, Frances, liked them. So, at least he was authentic. I mean, that tells you, you know, something. But anyway, the little man on the wedding cake, I, I contacted. I wrote to Mrs. Longworth, who then must have been in her 80s, legendary figure in this town. Um, and she wrote back and said, I'd be glad to talk to you. She gave me her phone number and told me when to call. And I called her. And she <laughs> it was wonderful. She had total lack of pretense. First of all, I think, my God, I'm talking to Alan Roosevelt Longworth, you know, which is, God, if you ask the best things about being a biographer, that's it, you know, sitting sitting in a room overlooking New York with Lawrence Rockefeller, listening to him talk about his grandfather, you know, or talking to Alan Roosevelt Longworth, that's the best. Um, but anyway, I asked her about this, and she, you know, she made very clear it did not originate with her. She overheard it in her dentist's office. And that was the origin of this famous story that clung to Dewey, you know, till the day he died. I mean, showed up in every obit. Diminished him. Okay. Uh, but but there, there, there's a tiny but telling example of how you, you you've got to be in the business of correcting the historical record. And that doesn't mean, I mean, there's nothing more off-putting than reading an author who stops, you know, every page or two to point out the errors of, of his predecessors. I, you know, I, I, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, you credit people with being serious and with making the effort that it, you know, takes you know better than anyone else what that effort is to have your wife taken over by a subject, whatever the subject may be. Um, but that said, the only point, the only point of of doing this is to get it right. I mean, to, to work as hard as possible to get it right. Go uh, back to your books. Name them all, I mean, so that we can get that on the record. Well, let's say there were two local books, but then... Dewey in 82, Hoover in 84, the Harvard Century in 86. If you notice, every two years, <laughs> and this is the same time I'm doing full, anyway, it's full-time work. Anyway, and then I did, actually, the, the, the Doles asked me to work with them on a joint autobiography, which was published in 88, in early in 88. So it was actually less than, than two years. Um... And then I went to Houghton Mifflin and did two books. And, and the books began to slow down. First of all, I was working full-time. Actually, I was doing double duty. <laughs> I was running two presidential libraries in 1990, the Hoover and the Eisenhower, the Eisenhower Centenary, and writing a book about George Washington's last 10 years. That was called Patriarch. And as you know, that was published early in 1993. Then another four-year gap, and my biography of Colonel McCormick, the Colonel, appeared in 1997. And then we come to the Grand Canyon of Gaps, 14 years later, 
uh, Nelson Rockefeller. And uh, it won't be another 14 years. It'll be about six years uh, with any walk with the, with the Gerald Ford. Which one of those books sold the most? It's a good question. You know, I don't know because of the, um, the, the, the uh, Patriarch was a Book of the Month Club main selection. And I, I, I just, I never saw the sales there. I'm told, I mean, just automatically, people who forget to return the, you know, the coupon, there's a certain amount of sales. So I don't know. But, but I, I think the, the, that I'm aware of, the Rockefeller sold about 30,000 copies. How important has it been over these years for you to make money on these books? I, again, I'm not claiming, you know, um, any special claim to virtue. Uh, it literally has never been a factor. Um, not that I was rolling in money, but I was able, through other jobs, uh, and, do, and doing a lot of speech writing. You know, if, I, I mean, I started out as a speech writer in D.C., and I continued to do, um, you know, quite a bit um, up through the 80s, which um, supported, you know, because, you know, as I say, the 25000 for the Dewey, I, believe it or not, you could live for a year on $25,000 when you're young. And, you know, I lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Rochester, New York for a year. Um, had a wonderful time. Did nothing but work on the book. Um, and you can do that when you're, when you're young. The, um, but money, money is, you know, I mean, I, I, um, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw, you know, royalty checks on the Rockefeller. I mean, to me, substantial royalty checks. Not, not enough to make back. I, I estimated, um, when you mentioned this, uh, over the years, those 14 years, Besides the, I took a fairly modest. I mean, by then it seemed, uh, I think it was it was a fifty thousand dollar advance. Well, you know, divide that by fourteen, and you get what you get. But anyway, I uh, at that point was working full time as presidential library director, and occasionally on the side doing speeches and and other writing projects. So you know, I. The fact is, I was doing everything I was doing to support my writing habit, my bio, my biographical habit, my Rockefeller habit, and um, I figure conservatively that I put about a quarter of a million of my own money into the Rockefeller project. But that's fine. I mean, most of it was deductible, uh, but beyond that, you know, I mean, money has never been. You know, I, I, it's just never been a driving factor or motive, really. Did you ever get in the middle of one of these books that you've written and say to yourself, I don't like this? No, you know, it's funny. I, first of all, I'm not in the habit of going back. and, But, but it's a fair question. I mean, but uh, sometimes you, you find yourself forced to. Uh, you're asked to talk, give a talk or whatever. And, um, it isn't that. It's what it is is... I have this strange memory that that literally conjures up very detailed pictures. Kind of you were there 20, 30, 40 years after the fact. Um, and so I'm looking at the Dewey book, and I remember I remember riding a bus. And I had to ride a bus uh, across upstate New York from Rochester 
to Albany, you know, because I was I had to get to Albany and see the governor's mansion and see you know see the the city where doing where go to the church where he was a, a deacon and I mean you know all all of those things, um, you know on site research, <laughs> um, on the cheap necessarily. Um, I'm not. I forget the question. I was asking, have you ever been in the middle oh, sure. of a project? What, what happened was you, you'd open a book and you'd say, you, didn't, you, you, you would assess what you were reading. You would be carried back to when you wrote it. I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, I can tell you, <laughs> I can see my, I can see the meal I had in the restaurant in Rochester <laughs> when I when I wrote this passage. Um, Undoing, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was, it was that, it was that re-experiencing is is what it was. So of course, I mean, you you know, you, you have critical faculties, and you, you think to yourself, you know, this book is. You can either say um, it's a young man's energy. It's a it is it's a very energetic book. It is it's an exuberant book. You you can you can detect the enthusiasm in that book. Now, some people might find that um, a sign of immaturity in a writer, uh, and others would welcome it as, uh, you know, for whatever reason. Um, I haven't really judged it one way or the other. I'm a more disciplined writer. If you could do other biographies, had the time and all that. You know, that's the interesting thing. There are very few people who you well, just as there are very few, there are very few people in the world you want to marry. There are very few people you want to live with, and writing biography is a marriage. Um, which again is is a curious mixture, because as I as I'll say, you, you need to be passionate about what you're doing, and you need to be dispassionate. In how you do it. But is there somebody right now that if you had time you would write a biography? You know, that's interesting because I'm thinking about what do I do after Ford? Um, I'll tell you, a book I wanted to do, and then I literally just within the last six weeks discovered someone has done it. It's not been published yet, but I thought, and I I thought, why hasn't someone done it? Well, now I know why. Uh, I thought there was, and I, I think there's a great book to be written about the relationship of Franklin Roosevelt and Al Smith, who between them really gave birth to liberalism in the 20th century and the modern Dem- Democratic Party. And and so many books have been written about FDR. And 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 yet and the, and it's a very dramatic story. Two people from totally different worlds who who didn't particularly care for each other initially and who really I think Never had much more than a, a, a kind of a marriage of convenience, uh, and then of course had a spectacular falling out over FDR's New Deal policies as Al Smith veered to the right. I mean, but other than that, um, I, there's there's I'd, I'd like to do a book about a, a woman that I've not done. I'd like to do a book, a literary biography, which I've not done, and of course Willa Cather. Fits fits 
fits the bill. Why Willa Cather? Uh, I've always been drawn to her for many reasons. First, to her life story, almost before her work. She's buried in Jaffrey Center, New Hampshire, which is a 20-mile ride from where I grew up. And that's where I first discovered her. And then I started reading the novels and just became captivated. I mean, Cather, for a long time, for a lot of people, was kind of a cult figure. And now I think her appeal is broadened. She's one of the almost, well, certainly a very unusual, I won't say unique, but very unusual figure in American literature, who was both a great artist and a great popular success. And you start to think you can almost count on, you know, one hand in, in the modern terms how many people fit that bill. Um, I, I identified with Cather. I was drawn to Cather. I mean, she, um, I, uh, I found her to be not only congenial, but uh, in many ways inspirational. And her, her, uh, she had pr- profoundly wise about people and relationships and place. I mean, it's in almost all of her novels, the place is is a major character itself. She uh, she fell in love with the land. Uh, in some ways, I think she loved found it easier to love the land than uh, the people on it. At the probably halfway point, where is the Gerald R. Ford biography? You know, I mean, I suppose they say it's bad luck to talk about a project uh, in gestation. Um, I am pleasantly surprised. Um, Gerald Ford turns out to be much more interesting than I thought. And I, and I thought I knew him pretty well. I think I knew him pretty well. Um, one of the things I've learned is, um, and I don't, mean to, I don't mean to make this sound sensational or a tease, um, there are things we didn't know, things that he, I think, probably didn't want us to know. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. He was much more ambitious. And he, he cloaked that image. Lee Hamilton said something really interesting to me, the congressman from Indiana um, who served as a Democrat with Ford for many years. Um, he said Ford cloaked his ambition um, pleasingly, which is a nice way of, of putting it. I mean, and I also think there are parallels with Ronald Reagan, you know, there are worse things in politics than being underestimated. If if you if you're secure enough about yourself, not not to make an issue out of that, good old Jerry was, in some quarters, a put down. Turned out, good old Jerry got himself into the vice presidency, and and I'm not suggesting. Uh, aspired to, to 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 the to the higher office, he didn't, but he was ready when it came. And the interesting thing—I mean, one of the interesting things about Ford is—and and this is what a biographer sort of dreams of—is that there are rooms in that mansion, rooms in that house that we haven't. Uh, visited yet and uh, it's made for a much more interesting 
process. I think to myself, I, for example, I, did, I wrote a chapter about the Warren Commission, which upends most of what we thought we knew, at least about Ford's. The fact of the matter is, Ford, very late in the, in the game, was the member of the commission most inclined to believe that there could be a foreign conspiracy. Uh, and that, of course, runs counter to what we know in his later years, when he was the the last surviving member and, and therefore the defender of the commission. But I found his questions, page after page after page of questions that he directed uh, to uh, witnesses, to the staff, to other investigators. And I thought to myself, you know, this guy would have been a really good courtroom lawyer. And, and of course, and there's, it turns, that's why when he was a very young, like, third-term congressman, the old Bowles asked him to sit on the CIA Oversight Committee because, A, they trusted him. Um, he wouldn't shoot off his mouth. No staff, no notes. But most important, they, they'd taken his measure. This was, this was um, a workhorse, not a show horse. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.